good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles today, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to be looking in particularly at verses 17 and 18. We are making our way through this blessed chapter because really this chapter is so incredible because what it does is it connects the beauty of the gospel. It reminds us of our former state and then it essentially tells us to go then and live that it reminds us of the beauty of Christ, his sufficiency, his ability, the reality that when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. And then it tells us to then go and live this way. But in the verses that we are looking at today, it seems as though what he's really trying to do is remind us of who we saw ourselves to be in Romans chapter three, and then bring us to a right understanding of who we are now. And so in summary, this verse is really very clearly stated in Romans 18 to really argue the whole point, just to have this in our minds before we read the rest of the text, it says this, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, everything that we have even just sung reminds us of this reality, that we are free from sin. But since we are free from sin, that does lead us to ask a question, well then, who are we slaves to? Because the scripture is quite clear, you can have one or the other, but in the reality of our existence, we are always slaves to something. And since we are free from sin, how then, what does it look like for us to be slaves of righteousness? And so if you would, brothers and sisters, please stand for the reading of God's word. I would remind you that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter six, starting in verse 12 says this, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Let's pray together. Father, we ask this day that you would bless the proclamation of your word. You remind us that it never returns void and it always accomplishes its purpose. And so, Father, I would plead, Lord, I know that you are faithful and that you will do this great work. But Lord, I ask, would you remind those who are slaves of righteousness of their freedom from sin? Lord, would you remind them that they are not what they once were? Lord, would you strengthen them that they might continue in obedience from the heart? And Lord, I must also ask that if there be any here who are remain to be under the yoke of sin, Lord, that they are still enslaved to it. Would you show them the loveliness of Christ? Would you woo them with your beauty and draw them to yourself? Lord, that they might see the, 
the beauty of Christ and be glad to come under his yoke, that glorious reign of grace that he has ushered in. And Lord, we ask this because we want tongues that sing the praises of Jesus. We want to see him made glorious and famous in our world, that the, we would go forth proclaiming his beauties. And Lord, that we might even now have foretaste of what we see in Revelation, that every tribe, tongue, and nation would be gathered around that throne singing, holy is the Lord. It is in the name of Christ and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So today what I'd like to do is do a couple of things. First, I want to remind us of who we once were. It's very important that we understand this. If we move past this too quickly, then we really won't understand the beauty of being under or being a slave of righteousness. And we certainly will not see the magnificence of Christ in freeing us from slavery to sin and bringing us into slavery to righteousness. And so we need to remember our previous state. And then we need to ask ourselves, how is it that we can say with confidence, we want were slaves of sin. And then lastly, I want to see what the Lord does, that mighty work of God that he does in the life of one he has freed from slavery to sin and brought under and brought into slavery to righteousness. And so the very first thing we want to look at here is in verse 17. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin. And if you would jump down to verse 18, I want to take that first phrase of 17 and that first phrase of 18 and really understand what's being communicated and having been set free from sin. Now, before we go any further, we must be people who confess our previous state. And what I mean by that is I, I, I find that the longer I am removed from my previous state of slavery to sin, it becomes a bit more difficult to remember who I was. It becomes really difficult to remember the bondage to sin that I once had. And if I could, just for a moment, I want to help us to remember that and maybe even confess that together. Because brothers and sisters, if we go forth saying that I was never a slave of sin, then I really do wonder if you were a slave of righteousness. Because the reality is that everyone who looks at the law of God and sees the righteousness of Christ, they will be the first to proclaim, I am not what he is. He is infinitely better than I am. He is infinitely more glorious. And should I stand and see his glory like Isaiah did, then I would be the first to confess, woe is me. And consider for a moment, even the prophet Isaiah, what's the very first thing he notices that is unclean about himself? Those lips that had proclaimed prophecy after prophecy. He knew that even the most glorious part of himself, the one that had ushered forth and spoke the very oracles of God needed to be cleansed by the blood of the altar. And so what must we proclaim of ourselves? We must proclaim that we once were dead in sin, as it were, slaves of sin. And, and, and maybe a simple question is this, how can you know you were a slave of sin? Well, this, this whole section of chapter six has reminded us over and over again that whatever you present your members to or present yourself to for obedience ultimately is your master. And so if I could maybe ask a couple of probing questions, did you present your members to sin for instruments of unrighteousness? I mean, I don't know about you, but I can look back on my life and I can remember moments of this, not 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 sin that was just maybe not accidental, but not intentional. But I remember the intentional trespass against the law of God. Do you remember these moments? Do you remember these moments where you presented your members to unrighteousness? And as we go further there, it's not even making reference to just the members, but it, later on in Romans 6, it reminds us that it's offering your entire selves as obedient slaves to unrighteousness. And I think there really has been a summary of this already presented in the book of Romans. Who was I? What does it look like to offer your members to unrighteousness? Thankfully, Paul has already painted us a really clear picture. 
Romans chapter three, starting in verse 10 says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. But I want you to pay very close attention to verses 13 through 18 because he works through the members of a man. Consider the first one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Brothers and sisters, for those of you who are in Christ, do you remember the days that your tongue was not used for worship and praise, but for blasphemy? Do you remember the days when the thought of saying Jesus and Lord would recoil your spirit because it meant that there was someone who was infinitely more glorious than you? Do you remember your former state? Do you remember the days when your throat was an open grave, when you use your tongues to deceive, as it goes on to say, the venom of asps is under their lips? that all that came forth from us was curses and bitterness. Do you remember these days? That's what it looks like to offer your tongues as members of unrighteousness. And that's who we once were. Was I a slave of sin? Well, I can say at bare minimum from Romans 3, my mouth was given over to sin. I gave it over. I was a slave of sin because I presented my members to it and I said, use it for what you will. What's really interesting about my slavery to sin, and if I could for just a moment tell you your slavery to sin as well, is you were extraordinarily faithful to your master. Not a single thing that I ever did up until the point where the spirit of God gave me life could be counted as anything other than unrighteous. I offered my tongue, I offered my lips to unrighteousness, but then it goes even further and it goes from his head to his feet. In verse 15, it says, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And perhaps it is you think, ah, my feet have never been swift to shed blood. Brothers and sisters, let's understand the commandment from Christ's interpretation. Have you hated your brother or sister? Have you hated another image bearer? Then we must say with the Lord Jesus Christ that you have not only hated him, but you have already murdered him in your heart. We must say, especially when we take that ethic, we must understand that we are not just murderers. We seem to be serial killers. We have offered our members. We have offered our mouths. We have offered our feet. We have offered the whole being to sin for to be given as instruments of unrighteousness. This is who we once were slaves of sin. And so we must be quick to profess, yes, Lord, I was a slave of sin. It had absolute dominion and authority over me and I could not ultimately free myself from it. And if you could for just a minute, I remember moments in my life where I thought to myself, I want to be better. I want there to be something different about me. And then I would go forth and I would attempt to white knuckle it. I would say, I wanna be free from the snare of sin, not because I actually long to be free from it, but because I long to be free from the ramifications of it. I long to be free from the, from the guilt, from the burdens, from the weight of sin. And then I would say, well, I'll just do a little bit better. Brothers and sisters, how has that worked out for you? You white knuckle it, you think I can do a little bit better, I can be a little bit more righteous, at least in the eyes of man, but you certainly know under the conviction of the Spirit that you cannot be righteous before the infinitely righteous God. That when you stand there on the day of judgment, you say, see all my deeds, he's gonna look past all the works into the heart and say, wicked, unrighteous altogether. And so that leads us, well, how can we save ourselves from slavery, slavery to sin? Can we even do it? And I think there is two categories that we must really understand for us to know our own frailty. First, we do not possess the ability, the strength and the power to free ourselves from sin snare. And I think that any man who would go forth saying, oh, well, I'll work a little bit harder, I'll do a little bit better, they do not understand the wickedness and ultimately the power of sin. My goodness, we treat it as if it's, 
It's this light and, and, and thing that really takes no power to defeat. It took the blood of Jesus to defeat it. And you think you're going to white knuckle it? You think you're going to just for a little bit say, oh, well, I'll just play with it for a moment. And then as I get a little bit older in my life, I'll, I'll, I'll get rid of it. I'll, I'll put it down. I'll no longer wrestle with it. I'll say, I'll give myself over to God. Brothers and sisters, cast yourself on Christ today because you have no power in and of yourself. There is no dominion that you have over your slave master. It has absolute authority over you. You have offered yourself completely to it and you did it in Genesis 3. We have given ourselves over to sin and we live under its snare and under its shackle. We have no power and dominion, but brothers and sisters, the, us having the power and dominion really doesn't even come into question because we don't have the desire. You're like, oh yeah, I wanna free myself from this. You don't even have the base desire to free yourself from sin. Why? Because it's very clear in scripture. We who are born in the trespasses and sins of our father, Adam, we love our captor. The question, do I have power, never comes to the mind of an unregenerate man. Why? Because he loves where he is. He says, I don't need the strength. I could care less about the strength. I don't have the desire. I don't even want to free myself from it. Your will is so bound to sin that you would never ask the question, can I be free? You might say, can I be free from guilt? You might say, can I experience joy? But you will never say in the natural state of your being, Lord, free me from sin and bind me to Christ. That is a supernatural act of God that we will see here in a moment. Now, lastly, if I could remind us that not only must we confess our state and we must confess our frailty, we must ultimately be quick to confess our end. What is the end of such slavery? Well, the scripture is abundantly clear that, the, that giving yourself over to sin ultimately gives forth death. Now, for some reason, we look at this and we always are thinking about the end. And by the end, I mean the actual moment where we cease to draw breath. That's the moment we think of, of death. But if I could give a moment of correction here. Being enslaved to sin is not waiting for everlasting death. It is in some sense experiencing it here and now. If we take Jesus at his word in John 17, when he says it's to the true life, eternal life is to know Christ and you're bound to sin, you're enslaved to it. You are not waiting for everlasting death. You are experiencing a perpetual one if you are separated from him because all life is bound in him. And you are here bound to this sinful state of being and you live under this death. That's why Ephesians 2 opens, not with you will be dead, but you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This is the natural state of being, dead in my trespasses and sins. And certainly we must not demean that everlasting death that is to come. We experience a perpetual one here, but as we make our way to that final judgment and you stand before the holy throne of God, he will give you the just wages for your works. And the just wages for your works are abundantly clear, even as later on Paul pens in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. He will give you what you have merited. He will give you what you have earned. And then we sit here and we think to ourselves, well, this has been a great reminder of how weak and frail and feeble and I am and how powerful sin's dominion is. But I want you to see this, brothers and sisters, because this verse is pregnant with hope. Can we just read it for a moment? It says, thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin. I love that simple word, once. 
As a matter of fact, I read this over and over and over again, and I text two people just this simple phrase, that you were once slaves of sin. Once. Once. Have you not heard of my own frailty? I don't have the strength. I don't have the ability. I don't have the will. There's nothing in me that can free myself. So how can I have any confidence that I was once a slave of sin? How can this be since I have neither desire or ability to free myself? Well, praise be to God, he is able and willing. It's not about our own ability. If it was about our own ability, the scriptures would end in Genesis 3. We would have wrapped it all up. Everyone would have been condemned. There would be no good news to be proclaimed and God would still be just. But praise be to God, as we read through the scriptures, we see a God who is able and willing, powerful in all of his ways. And if I could just for a moment say this, let's just read the letter for a moment. Because we're not isolating ourselves in Romans chapter six. If we go all the way back to Romans chapter one, we see that he is so willing that he would be descended from David and even better yet, descended from heaven to dwell amongst those he he would redeem. He was made like his brothers in every way, yet without sin. What does it mean? How can I be free? Well, if you're looking at yourself, then you must quickly say, I can never be free. But if you look at the testimony of scripture, if you look at the glory of Christ, if you look at his incredible ability to be free from sin in every way, and then at the exact same time, free those, those brothers and sisters who he was made like, he can free them from sin as well. When we understand that it is not about us, but it's ultimately about the one who is able to redeem unto the uttermost, then we say, praise be to God, I once was a slave of sin. And this testimony is not only found in the book of Romans, it is found throughout the entire book of scripture. If we go back to Genesis chapter three, the immediate action of our God and King is to clothe Adam and Eve. If we progress forward, we see in the Exodus that he would deliver a people who were in bondage and slavery to sin. They would stand on the shoreline of the Red Sea and they would say, who can rescue us? And Moses would look back and say, be still, God is able. Brothers and sisters, he has been redeeming. He has been freeing from slavery to sin since Genesis 3, since it entered into our bloodstreams. And here we know this, that he is not weak and frail in his work. When he delivers from sin, he delivers from sin to the uttermost. It has no dominion over us any longer. We must say, and we must say with really a clear and even a hopeful word that we once were slaves of sin and be thrilled by the reality that we can say once. Now, if I could for a moment, some of you live in this state. Some of you live still bound to sin. You still offer your members. You offer the whole man up to sin. Hear me when I say this. The scripture is clear. The wages of sin is death. There is nothing on the other side of this death for you except more death. But the beauty is, You can, should you flee to Christ, say, I once was dead in my sin. And you can say with absolute confidence, I am alive in Christ today and I will be alive in him tomorrow and I will be alive in him throughout all eternity. And so if I could make just one simple plea, today flee to Jesus and find in him a perfect savior because today is the day of salvation and you are certainly not guaranteed tomorrow. So flee to Christ and be glad to say, that I was once a slave of sin. 
But if I could add what our appropriate response is, this verse introduces, it begins with a praise of a moment of thanksgiving, a moment of rejoicing. In verse 17, it says, but thanks be to God. What is the only reasonable response, brothers and sisters, to being free from sin's dominion, to no longer being slaves of sin, but instead being slaves of righteousness? The only appropriate response is thanks be to God. Because we have done nothing. And as we will see here in a moment, we will see that everything that we have, that we are now is born of him, not born from us. So we must say, as we look here, I once was a slave. Well, who can I thank for the, the reality that I once was a slave? I must give all my thanks. I must give all the glory. I must give all the praise to God and to God alone. And when I speak of him in this way, I am speaking of that glorious Trinity, that God that we serve in all of his three persons, the Father who sent the Son, Jesus who bled, and the Spirit who wooed us to himself. Praise be to God he is able to save into the uttermost. He has obliterated sin's dominion. And I must go on thanking him. This is the state, brothers and sisters, of what it means that we, when we say, I once was a slave of sin, is thanks be to God no longer. I am free. Now, that's the reality that we live in. We're free, but I think there is in this verse a clear layout of how God does this in the heart of a man. Because if you think about this for a moment, we've gone from obedient slaves to sin and now at the end of this verse, we're ultimately going to find that no longer are we obedient slaves to sin, but this verse says that we are obedient from the heart now to Jesus Christ, ultimately to the standard of teaching that we've been committed. Our obedience has dramatically shifted. Well, how does this come about? How is it that Lawson, when he was 14 years old, his affections were given to sin. He loved and, and served sin faithfully. And then all of a sudden, in the twinkling of an eye, in a moment, no longer is that mine. And now I love Christ and desire to obey him. You think that was just like a switch I flipped? You think you just up and decided, I think I'll be obedient today? Brothers and sisters, it takes the work of God to bring this about. And that's ultimately what we will see. So let's turn our attention later on into verse 17. It says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So the first thing that we must ask is, what are those, or we are those who have been committed to a standard of teaching? And that leads us to ask the question, what is the standard of teaching that we have been committed to? Because notice the very end of verse 17, it says, we are obedient ultimately to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. That leads us to ask the rather simple question, what is this standard of teaching? What is the standard of teaching that takes me from obedient slave of sin to obedient to righteousness in Christ? What is this teaching? And if I could, we'll just turn back into Romans for just a moment and see a couple of things, and then we'll look elsewhere and maybe sum it up in one simple verse. So first, the standard of teaching is this. It is righteousness apart from the law. Is there anything that has captivated your soul, brothers and sisters, in the reality that Jesus Christ is glad to clothe you with his own righteousness? This is the standard of teaching that Paul is setting forth. As a matter of fact, it's his introduction to the book that ultimately there's a righteousness of God that will be bestowed. And then later on in Romans 3, he clarifies. So Romans 3, 21 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What is the standard of teaching? The standard of teaching is that Jesus Christ in his infinite grace would look at slaves of sin and give them his righteousness. Just clothe them. 
And that's just one maybe simple text. Romans 5, 21 later on reminds us in verse 20, let's read that. It says, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin, is, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is the standard of teaching? Is that if you be under, if you be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, then you rest under his glorious reign of grace. You've been freed from the law. Sin has lost its power and dominion. And now you sit underneath the glorious reign of of grace, always invited to dwell eternally with the true God, true man, Christ the Lord. The standard of teaching is that we have in Christ this blessed righteousness. And should we turn our attention a bit further forward in Romans chapter eight, verses one and two, it says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How can this be? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is the blessed teaching that we have been given over to, that we have been delivered to? It is that we are no longer under our former master. We have been brought under the glorious reign of Christ. He has freed us by his spirit. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19, we read this last week, reminding us that the being under the law is ultimately being under the ministry of condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19 says this, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting them with the message of reconciliation. What is that glorious teaching, that doctrine that we have been given over to? It is that we have now been reconciled to God through the ministry of reconciliation that was first and foremost Christ and is now the ministry of those who have been reconciled. And perhaps maybe the simplest way to sum this up. Certainly we see those pieces and parts that are ultimately brought about by the work of Christ. But I think Paul says it really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. What is the doctrine? What is the standard of teaching to which we have been delivered? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, For I deliver to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. What is that blessed standard of teaching that we have been delivered over to? We have been delivered over to the doctrine of Christ. We have been delivered over to the dominion of Jesus. We have been delivered over not just to his work, but to his whole person. He is ours. The standard of teaching that Paul cannot stop preaching. The thing that he says is of first importance is that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised in accordance with the scripture. Brothers and sisters, what we have ultimately, the standard of teaching that we have been delivered to is the gospel of God in Christ. This is what we have been committed to. We have been committed to this glorious message of freedom from sin and life and life forevermore with Jesus. Now, there is a really important point found in this text. It is not only that we have been delivered over to this blessed teaching of the gospel, but I want you to notice the passive nature. Just notice the, what the text says here in verse 17 again. It says, which you were committed if you pay very close attention in the Greek, that's dealing with the passive. You did nothing. It's not that you looked at the standard of teaching and said, oh yes, that most certainly is what I desire. Remember, brothers and sisters, if we turn a page back in Romans chapter three, we see none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. That's the reality of the natural state. That's the reality of the natural man. How then is it that I am now under and love this standard of teaching that is Christ? When it tells me in, uh, two chapters later, three chapters earlier, forgive me, that I didn't seek for God, I didn't love him, I didn't care for him, I'd gone astray. And should he have shown himself to me, then I would have fleed in my natural state. 
How is it that I can see here that I'm committed and that I'm obedient and ultimately obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching? And that would lead us to ask, well, if I'm the passive agent in this being delivered or given over to the standard of teaching, who then is the active one? Who is the active participant? Who is the one acting on me as the passive agent? Well, brothers and sisters, it's quite clear, isn't it? Who is that active agent? Then we could ask other questions that surround this. Well, who is the good shepherd of your soul? Who is the one that watches over you, that brings you back to himself? Who is it that seeks and saves that which is lost? Why can we read John 10 and immediately say, oh, that's all of Christ. He is the good shepherd. And here we look and we say, oh, I committed myself. No, brothers and sisters, the good shepherd of your soul committed you to this blessed teaching. And not only just the Son, but the Father and the Spirit are involved in this as well. We must say, it is God who draws, it is Christ who woos, it is the Spirit that effectually calls. And oh, what glad passive agents are those who the triune God acts upon to deliver them over to the triumphant gospel of God. And then and only then can we rightly say, I was once a slave. When I'm committed to the standard of teaching by the power of God, and brothers and sisters, please hear me, it takes the power of the triune God to save a sinner. Salvation is an impossibility if he is not the triune God of the scriptures. But with the God of the scriptures, the one that is revealed from Genesis to Revelation, we see a Trinitarian harmony in the work of salvation. And as we see, as we behold, as the spirit gives gives light so that we might see Christ and flee to him, then we are quickly set ablaze with love for him. And I want you to notice this because sometimes we deal with doctrines and we never land at beauty. And it's so vitally important that we land at beauty. It's so easy for us to make our way through this. And perhaps it is that you have a a leaning toward perhaps a, a Calvinistic theology. But if that's the case and you don't ever land it beautiful, then you don't understand it. Because the beauty is this, that I was once a slave and that the triune God in his infinite grace took a slave and made him a son. And now I can stand with hearts ablaze that Christ has done all and say, thanks be to God. The reason that this naturally leads into obedience, but not just a, a, an obedience of legalism or an obedience of, of please do this, so now I'm gonna do this for my own reward. It's an obedience from the heart. It's the heart that has been changed. And brothers and sisters, if you are committed to the standard of teaching of the gospel and your heart is not set ablaze with love of Christ, then you might not be committed to it. It changes the man. It changes the affections. It changes desires. And so then and only then can I say in the deepest part of myself, oh, how I love to obey Christ. There's a reason that Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But hear me, for those of us who have been committed to the teaching, the doctrine, the gospel of Christ, it is the only natural result. The only natural result of being born again is that you love Jesus and everything else flows from that one thing, that you see him as beautiful, as lovely, and then you live accordingly. Only then will you live accordingly. And so this glorious doctrine that we've been given and committed to is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then my heart is set ablaze by this reality because I'm not what I once was. If you turn back for just a moment to Romans chapter three, verse 10, and I really wanna pay close attention to verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. If you have been committed to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, this is not you. 
You have been changed, brothers and sisters. Your heart has been set ablaze by the beauty of the gospel. Is it not so obvious that that the, the natural man would flee from God, but when the Spirit gives him life, his immediate reaction is to run to him, is to look to Christ and say, there is all of my joy, there is infinite beauty found in him, and then my only response is flee to Jesus. We must be quick to say, yes, I am a wretch, but I am changed. I have been born again. I can see the kingdom of God. I delight in the kingdom of God. And not only do I delight in the kingdom of God, but I delight in the king of that land. And I long to be with him. We have most certainly been changed. Now, that does lead us to where this heart set ablaze flows to. Because notice verse 17 again. It says, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So the the beginning of this, which is ultimately the pronouncement that I am no longer a slave to sin, but I'm a slave to righteousness, is the obedience that is birthed forth from you being committed to the standard of teaching that is the gospel of God and your heart being set ablaze with love of your Redeemer. And then there is this obedience that indicates I am no longer a slave to sin, I am a slave to righteousness. That's my identifier. I am a slave to righteousness, ultimately meaning that I am a slave to Christ and Christ alone. What is that obedience? What does that obedience ultimately look like? Well, we said last week that Paul clarified this in Romans chapter one, when he said that Paul's intention of writing this letter, Paul's intention of his whole apostolic office is to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the Gentiles. His whole concept is I want to see people profess Jesus Christ as Lord and then we'll see the fruit produced from it. I'm gonna go forth, I'm gonna sow, I'm gonna water. We're gonna trust God to give the growth, but I guarantee this, that there will be many who will be brought from death to life. And we see the ultimate obedience of faith clearly laid out in Romans chapter 10. So what is that obedience faith? What does it do? How does that evidence? Well, Romans 10 makes it clear. Romans 10, eight and nine. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What is the obedience produced from the heart set ablaze by the glory of the gospel of God? It is this, a mouth that cannot help but cry, Jesus is Lord. He is King. He is all in all. The response to all of the beautiful work of God is to look at him and call him exactly what he is. He is king. He is Lord. He is glorious. He is holy. He is just. Our proclamation is simply agreeing with what is true to reality. He is our great God and King. And so we go forth proclaiming Jesus is Lord. And if I could for a moment say this, this proclamation does not cease. Tell me, saint, have you stopped this proclamation? Jesus is Lord. Can you even bring yourself to fathom a reality where you stop proclaiming Jesus is Lord? How can it be? For I was once a slave of sin, but now because of all the glorious work of Christ, the the gospel that he has given to me, the new life that he has given me by the Spirit, the fact that I even cried once in my life, Abba, Father, is born only of the Spirit of God, and I must then go on proclaiming. 
I must then go on living in such a way where it is not only my mouth that professes, but it is my heart that believes that Jesus Christ is Lord, that this is essentially my identifier. What is my great act of obedience? It is looking to Christ and saying, he is Lord. What does it mean to be obedient to righteousness? What does it mean to be no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to obedience, which leads to righteousness? It means that I look at Christ and I say, he is Lord. Now, oddly enough, Paul's whole premise of this was to land us at the end of verse 18. He wants us to see the mechanism. He wants us to see that we're committed to a standard of teaching. He wants us to see that our hearts are now changed, our affections, what we find to be beautiful has been altered altogether. And now then, and only then, will we give forth an obedient proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. And to summarize this in one simple phrase, he says in verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What is it that lands us at this position? How is it that we can say and say with confidence? And remember, brothers and sisters, I think the great beauty of the Christian faith is that we can go forth confidently proclaiming, I belong to Jesus. It means that I can go forth saying, I am a slave of righteousness. I am not what I once was. I go forth proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and I live accordingly. And if I could for just a moment, remind us of this great reality, that when you are a slave of righteousness, the whole premise is that my members, my whole self has been offered up to God in the exact same way that it once was offered up to sin. The reality is that if you be born again, if you be brought under the headship of Jesus, then you are a slave of righteousness. And here is the great fruit evidence of that is you live accordingly. It is a changed heart that loves Christ and then delights to obey. The crescendo of this whole argument is that yes, most clearly as verse 16 says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And Paul looks back at us and says, if you know Jesus Christ, then you are his slave and his glorious reward is yours. All the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, yours. Christ is yours. Life is yours. Peace is yours. Why? Because God committed us to a standard of teaching. Because at the end of this, we must go back up and say this, thanks be to God. The purpose of him writing this is to cast us all low. You look at this and you think, oh, I committed myself. No, that's been disarmed. The standard of teaching, I didn't even come up with that. I was trying to white knuckle it. And then you think of your own heart and you know it's callousness and it's wickedness and it's weakness of will. And now that's different and changed. And so you can't ever look at yourself and say, thanks be to God or thanks be to self. I must always be saying, thanks be to God. And if I could perhaps summarize the whole concept of this in this way. Thanks be to God, I was once a slave to sin, but no longer. Thanks be to God that he was willing to free a rebel idolater. Thanks be to God, he delivered me to the doctrine of Christ. Thanks be to God, he set my heart ablaze by his love. Thanks be to God that I obeyed the gospel. That was born of him too. Thanks be to God that he made me a slave of righteousness. Why? Thanks be to God alone. Because he who does the work receives the praise. He receives the praise. And so we must always go on saying, thanks be to God. Let's pray together. 